Well, let's look in on the war in Ukraine now. Uh, over the weekend, of course, U.S. President Joe Biden made some remarks about uh, Vladimir Putin shouldn't be in power. That was interpreted by some as a gaffe, interpreted by others as straight talk, interpreted by others as a bit of both. Um, today, he stood by his words, saying the U.S. is not calling for regime change in Russia, but Putin has to go. It was expressing my outrage. He shouldn't remain in power. Just like, you know, bad people shouldn't continue to do bad things. But it doesn't mean we have a fundamental policy to do anything to take Putin down in any way. Well, as the fighting continues, more than 4 million Ukrainians have fled the country, including people escaping the siege of the eastern coastal city of Mariupol. Russia has resorted to pummeling Ukrainian towns and cities, including Mariupol, with artillery and airstrikes after being dragged down or bogged down by Ukrainian resistance. Here's one woman who escaped Mariupol to get to Poland. There is no gas, no electricity, no heating, no cell phone service. Uh, we melt snow to have at least something to drink. We cook on open fires. Uh, under shelling and bombs, just because if you don't, you will have nothing to eat. Well, stories like that and the high number of civilian deaths uh, mean that the UN Secretary General is calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Ukraine and an end to Russia's indiscriminate attacks. The solution to this humanitarian tragedy is not humanitarian. It is political. I'm therefore appealing for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to allow for progress in serious political negotiations aiming at reaching a peace agreement based on the principles of the United Nations Charter. UN Secretary General, General Antonio Guterres. Well, today, Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, spoke to Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister, gave him an update on new ceasefire talks with Russia that start tomorrow. The two leaders talked about next steps, including more humanitarian aid and military support, as well as further sanctions against Russia. So is there any chance for any breakthrough coming up at these talks? My next guest not only dealt with Vladimir Putin, he helped broker the peace deal between Russia and Georgia following Russia's 2008 invasion of its neighbor. Alexander Stubb is the former prime minister of Finland and a professor at the European University Institute, and he joins me now. Alexander Stoop, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, my pleasure. I think a lot of the conversation now that we're more than a month into this invasion, a lot of the conversation here in Canada has been about this idea that Vladimir Putin is an irrational actor. Uh, he's someone that you know, and, and you argue that he's not. Yeah, certainly not. I, I think it's a Western fallacy. We try to do this kind of psycho analysis of individuals that we haven't even met and we just you know look at them on TV or listen to their rantings and think that they're irrational. But actually, Putin, I met him a few times. I, I think he's very analytical. He's very cold, very shrewd, uh, very well prepared to most situations. And, uh, you know, everyone makes mistakes, but don't make the mistake of thinking that he's irrational because he's not, especially not from a Russian perspective. I was going to say, in, in that sense, how do you decipher his decision to invade Ukraine? Again, or further, part, further invade Ukraine, I should say. Yeah, it, it's part of his you know, big plan for what he calls Great Russia or Historic Russia. And it basically goes back to a vision of Russia in the 1800s, which is based on three pillars, uh, one language, Russian, uh, one religion, Orthodox, and then one leader himself. And for him, it also means that you know, Belarus is part of Russia, Ukraine 
is part of Russia and he might even be willing to push it a little bit forward. And in, in many ways, you know, it, it's really about his legacy and the way in which he sees his place in history somewhere next to, you know, Ivan the Terrible or Peter the Great or, or Stalin, who he still admires. So, you know, it, it's just a different type of rationality. So, I, you know, he hasn't lost his marbles because he sits far away in a big table. He hasn't been isolated during COVID. You know, it's, <laughs> it, 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 this is the way in which he is. Uh, and, and, uh, and this is what we should expect. So instead, focus on what he's doing rather than what he's thinking. What were his aims with this invasion and, and how, how badly did he, did he get it wrong? Well, I think he got it very wrong, actually. He's, he, he's three stated apes, right? I mean, the first one was to basically take over Ukraine. I mean, he didn't use those words, but he really wanted to replace Zelensky and put in a, a Russian puppet government into Ukraine. The second one, and linked to this was, of course, the idea that, you know, he claimed that, that Ukraine shouldn't join NATO. The second one was to push back the frontiers of NATO. So he, he, he doesn't like the fact that Eastern and Central European countries, say the Baltics and, and Poland, Slovakia, the Czechs, uh, I name, name those because I know I have a Canadian audience. They understand ice hockey. So, yeah, exactly. so you know, he wanted to push, push back the frontiers. Uh, but then the third one is that he wanted to keep Finland and Sweden out of, out of NATO. And, you know, on those three accounts, he's, he's failed miserably because, number one, Ukraine, uh, you know, is becoming European and wants to go into NATO. Number two, NATO has never shown more unity and purpose since its foundation in 1949. And now Finland and Sweden are knocking on the door of NATO membership. So strategically, he, he, he did make a colossal mistake. I did want to ask you about Finland and Sweden and NATO in a bit. Uh, before I do that, you were involved in the negotiations to bring an end to the invasion of Georgia uh, 14 years ago. Is there any chance for a negotiated peace here, do you think? Well, not yet. I mean, the stakes then were actually much lower. I mean, I went in with, I was foreign minister at the time and, and chairman of the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, uh, and went into Georgia to Belize first, together with Bernard Kushner, then uh, Foreign Minister of France. And we were able to get a ceasefire agreement after going to Moscow. And then the, you know, the, the deal was clinched by, by President Sarkozy. But in five days, we got six points. But I think the stakes were much lower, uh, for especially for Putin. And, and from that conflict, that war, Yes, of course, there were casualties, but two frozen conflicts were created, the areas of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So I, I thought this would be the same case, actually, to, to create some kind of a frozen conflict in you know, Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, but, I, you know, it, it's just this, this war is too big for Putin to fail. Uh, and, and also Zelensky and the Ukrainians are not going to give up. There's no reason for doing that because, you know, this was, a, this was a war that was supposed to end in 48 hours and soon will be in 48 days and it hasn't ended. In that sense, uh, have we done enough, do you think? Uh, have countries like Canada and, and allies done enough to support Ukraine? Yeah, I'd say enough and then more. Because you always have this sort of, you know, idealism versus realism, 
of course, you'd like to go in there and, you know, help out and, and, uh, and you know, need to be involved. But, you know, there are <laughs> collateral risks and, and risks in, in that as well. So, you know, the thing that we've done so far is, first of all, to show political solidarity. Second, to put the biggest wave of sanctions that we've seen in the history of the West, especially the European Union, with four waves of sanctions, now a fifth one coming up. Um, and then, of course, providing arms, uh, which, which we have done. Um, and and I, I think, you know, this took Putin by surprise and the Russians by surprise. The first one was, first surprise for Putin was, was Ukrainian resistance and, and resilience. And the second one is the unity of the West. And, you know, he realizes that he's going to be completely isolated. I mean, we're looking at the biggest country in the world with the greatest natural resources in the world becoming a little bit of a North Korea to a certain extent, you know, a pariah state because of the actions of, of his leaders. So, yes, I would say that we have, we have done in, enough, um, you know, whether you're American or Canadian or, or European, not much more we could have done. When you look at the possibility of of offering him at least ways out or offering what we like to call off ramps, uh, and now we're hearing today there are obviously reports out of of, of an alleged poisoning at one of those negotiation <laughs> sessions. Where does that? I mean, it's hard to make sense of of exactly what Vladimir Putin wants and what would bring him to a table in the first place, and what Ukraine would be willing to cede at this point, if anything. Well, that's exactly the point. I mean, it, it, you know, if those poison cases are, are true and, and verified, I mean, just just when you think that it can't get crazier, it, it does. And 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 in in that sense, you know, he, he's not a person who is in a state of mind, a rational state of mind, may I add, to 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 negotiate for anything. And and really, I guess the only thing that he can try to do is is to try to get some kind of a deal which he can then sell to his public back home, which still supports him quite strongly, may I add, and, and partially because of, you know, the, 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 the war propaganda and information war and, and what Russians are fed. They're basically being isolated from Western flows of, of information, but, but also partially because, you know, he's toning down his aims. I mean, the original aims were big. Now he's already talking about, well, only taking over parts of Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. But, you see, I just don't see an end game in this. I mean, you know, if you just look at the war maps at the moment, what the Russians have been able to seize or then back off, I mean, it's very patchy. And, and you can't end up with, with sort of, you know, 20 small little frozen conflicts and aerial overtakes uh, that, that, that in, a, in a permanent state of affairs because no one wants this to, to end up being the new Bosnia, if you will. A Bosnia of 44 million people doesn't sound very appealing. No, no, it certainly doesn't. Um, I'm speaking with Alexander Stug, former Prime Minister of Finland and professor at the European University Institute. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about the reaction from Finland to all this, obviously a long border, a relatively long border with Russia, and uh, what that might mean for other countries who are neighbours to big powers. We'll be back. I'm back with Alexander Stub, former Prime Minister of Finland and professor at the European University Institute. We've been talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine now a little more than a month after it happened and, and, uh, and why Vladimir Putin, at least in his, from his perspective, is acting rashly in all this and how there may, may or un, there's unlikely to be a climb down anytime soon. One of the very interesting things we've been watching from afar, of course, is the sudden surge in popularity 
um, for Finland joining NATO and Sweden as well. Uh, how close is that to being a reality and what's driving it now? Oh, yeah, it's very close. I mean, you know, we used to be uh, 50% against NATO membership and 20 in favor. I hasten to add that I belong to the transatlantic uh, NATO guys. In other words, I've always been in favor of NATO membership for, for Finland. I, I always thought it would increase security here in the northeastern corner of Europe. Now, may that be as it is, uh, now these opinion polls have completely reversed, which basically means that the latest one gave 62% in favor of NATO membership and 12 again, sorry, 16 against. So, you know, public opinion has shifted and with that politicians have shifted. So if, if you ask me the question, how close are we to filing an, uh, an application? I say we're not days and weeks away, but we are months away. Uh, we could even be talking about one or two months. I, I really don't know because, you know, I, I'm not a decision maker anymore. But this is my sort of gut feeling. And we've seen this shift at, at lightning speed across Europe, more or less. I mean, specifically Germany. But this complete reassessment of the security situation in a matter of four or five weeks, it's, it's been astounding to watch. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, after the end of the Cold War, um, and especially the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, many of us, much like Francis Fukuyama, believed uh, sort of in the end of history, if by that we mean that, you know, trade, uh, freedom will lead to this avalanche of, of liberal democracies being born all around the world. And of course, that took place in Europe. Uh, you know, quite remarkably and, and very fast. Um, and, 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 but now that has been reversed. So in Europe, the way in which we look at things is that we've created a, or Putin has created a, a new iron curtain. Uh, so on one side, you have Russia, whatever that territory includes, which is authoritarian, totalitarian and aggressive and actually isolated. And the other side of that curtain, you have sort of a group of, say, 30 to 35 European states. Um, some of them are in the European Union, some of them are in, in NATO, some of them are in, in both, or some in either or. And this group is, is an alliance of, of democracies, uh, countries that believe in cooperation and free trade and globalization and a social market economy. Uh, and, and, and the reaction has been to say, okay, we tried to bring Russia into the realm of a normal, international modern state, but we failed. Uh, and I, I think one of the big issues here, actually two, is one is this curse of natural resources. You know, it's got the greatest natural resources in the world, which basically means that it hasn't been capable to modernize itself. So 50% of its state budget uh, came from uh, exports in fossil fuels, namely oil and, and, and gas. And you know, it's kind of a comfortable place to be in, but it doesn't exactly drive the tech sector forward, if you will. Uh, and secondly, it's got this sort of cultural, historical vision of itself as always being attacked by the rest of the world, whether it's the Mongols or the Nazis or, or, or now NATO. And on top of that, it feels like it has saved Europe at least twice, you know, once from Napoleon and the other time from, from, from Hitler. So when it didn't become part of this sort of international community, the rest of us are now reacting and say, okay, that's it. You know, we, we can't trust them anymore. So let's join NATO. 
let's join the European Union and, and realize that we're in this for the long haul with the Russians. One thing that's always struck me, though, is I think Vladimir Putin's always been well aware that the, that unity of 35, or if you include the US and Canada and others, that given domestic politics in all those countries, that unity can fray. Is time on Vladimir Putin's side here, or is time on everyone else's side? I think time is on everyone else's side. I mean, you know, he could count on the fraying and the sort of fragmentation of the West uh, slowly in the post-Cold War era. And of course, with his information wars and trolls, meddling in in you know US elections or 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 in you know Hungary and Poland and and sort of this how would I say conservative right wing uh of 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 the liberal world he was doing quite well but now you know he's created the sort of 1956 moment or 1968 moment by which I mean to say same thing with the Soviet tanks marching to to Budapest to Hungary in 56 and then to Prague in, in 68. So this is going to leave a long-term uh, sentiment. Alexander Stubb, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot.